Hello and welcome to the Get Started with Film Photography podcast. My name is Graham Young. This is the April 2019 Questions and Answers edition. We have four questions up for this episode and we'll go ahead and get right into it. The first question comes from at Jevhar on Instagram. And if I am pronouncing this incorrectly, I apologize. It is at J-E-V-H-A-R-R on Instagram. So that is who is asking the question. He asks, why are the F-stop numbers different colors and what do they have to do with the colored lines on the lens barrel? Now, if you have colored lines on your lens barrel and you have different colored F-stops, most likely you have a Nikon camera. Nikon was was the company that, that most commonly changed the colors of the lines on the barrel of the camera. But what they all have to do with is depth of field. Now, your camera may not have different colors for these lines, but you will have almost always depth of field numbers on your lens. In later cameras, in some autofocus cameras of the late 1990s, and then the digital single lens reflex cameras of the current era, they will not have these depth of field markings on the barrel of the lens. But usually manual lens cameras all have these depth of field marks. And Let's first of all talk about what depth of field is. So the, the basic concept is that a lens focuses for a specific spot, but other things can be in focus as well. So the smaller the aperture, meaning if you're out at f16, f22, those ranges, if you have a very small aperture, your depth of field will actually be longer. And we'll talk about exactly what that depth of field is in a minute. If you have a larger aperture, meaning f2.8, f1.4, somewhere in there, then that means that you're going to have a very short depth of field. So let's define specifically what depth of field is. And there is, just to let you know, there is a little bit of controversy on the concept of depth of field. It's it's not a huge controversy, but there is just a little bit of a controversy about it. The idea is when you focus on a specific spot, there's a certain distance that is in front of that object you're focusing on that will also be in focus. And there's a certain distance on the other side of the object you're focusing on that will also be in focus. Your camera lens only actually focuses on one distance. So truly, you are only focused on one area. When you look at an image, you will also see that there are areas in front that appear to be in focus. And and the term for this would be apparent focus. They are in apparent focus. They're not actually in focus, but they are in apparent focus. And really, all that means is that the blurriness the difference between the sharp focal point where you're focusing and an object that's either in front or in back of that, the blurriness has not kicked in enough so that you would really say it is out of focus. It is technically 
an area of apparent focus. If you were going to imagine that you are focused on an object that is three meters away from you and your f-stop is set so that one meter in front of you is also in apparent focus, then if that's true, if you are at three meters Something at two meters would also be an apparent focus, but something then two meters behind. So if we're at three meters, it would be five meters away. That object that is five meters away would also be in focus. What's going on there is when you focus on an object, if something is in focus, say, as I said, one unit in front, it is two units in back that you're going to have the same level of focus. So you focus and you have one third in front and two thirds in back that are also in focus or they are in apparent focus. Now, there are people who will argue that the only thing that's in focus is that one spot. And the idea of apparent focus is ridiculous. Well, that all has to do with the resolution of how that image is then reproduced. If it is a large format photograph that is enlarged to a very, very high degree, you might see those little changes in focus between that that point that's in actual focus and that point that's in apparent focus. But generally, if you're using a 35 millimeter camera or even a digital single lens reflex camera, those are going to be areas where you're really not going to notice that it's out of focus. So this is, this is all about that depth of field. Those marks that are on your lens barrel. We're going to assume, and, and I'll go run through a scenario of a zoom lens as well, but I'm going to assume that this lens is a prime lens. And a prime lens is a lens that just has one focal length. It's a 28 millimeter lens. It's not a zoom, a 28 to 50 millimeter lens. That would be a zoom. A zoom lens can change its focal length. If it is a prime lens, those markings will generally just be little hash marks around the barrel of the lens. And what you'll see is you'll see a scale that goes on either side of the focus mark, the focus tick that's on the lens. The scale will will go out. It'll start at whatever the minimum aperture is for that lens. Let's say it's a 2.8, f2.8 lens. It will start at f2.8, and then the next mark out will be 5.6, and then you'll get 8 and 11 and 22, and they are progressively further out from that central tick mark. If you focus, say you're going to again focus on that object that is three meters away, you will see, and, and again, I believe I said that we were at F5.6. At F5.6, three meters away, you'll see that the F5.6 tick mark will be near that two meter mark. And that on the other side of the line, the other side of the, the central tick mark, you'll see the tick mark for 5.6 on the other side, and you'll see that five meters away will be the distance listed there. The idea of these little tick marks is that if you have your aperture at f5.6, anything between 
the 5.6 on the right and the 5.6 on the left, any marking in there is going to be in apparent focus. So as you stop down that depth of field, that depth of apparent focus widens and you get a wider area that is in focus. There is a way of working and we refer to it as the hyperfocal method of focusing your lens. What you do is if you're out and about, and this is, this is a great way to take very quick snapshots. Like if you're on a street, you're at a parade and you don't want to spend time uh, focusing. You don't want to spend time doing any of that stuff. What you can do is you can set your aperture to a middle number. Let's say F11 for this case. And then you turn the focus ring so that the infinity focus mark is right at that F11. And then you look around to the other side, the other side where F11 will give you, say, two meters. That usually is about right for that type of a lens. So anywhere between two meters and the far horizon, two meters and as far away as you can see, will be in apparent focus. So then you don't even have to focus. So as long as something is is further away from you than two meters, it's going to be in focus. That is called hyperfocal. That is a very fun way to go about shooting, especially on a very busy, fast-paced shooting area. Now, if you have a zoom lens, you might notice that those lines will still be there, but those lines will curve. That's because as you turn the zoom collar on that lens, your lens will move in and out. And as it moves in and out, the depth of field will change. The wider the angle of lens, the further the depth of field, and the more telephoto that lens is, the shorter depth of field that it's going to have. So you could start out with something with infinity at F11, but if you zoom out, suddenly infinity is not any longer within that area of apparent focus. So that's something to keep in mind as you're shooting using your depth of field preview. Our second question comes from Matt Jones, and Matt Jones is mjones41 on Instagram. I have a friend who is interested in trying out film because she thinks it would be fun and cool, as it is, he puts in parentheses. And she is too young to have ever been exposed to it back in the day. She recently bought a Lomo simple-use camera and has taken about half the shots, but now is wondering what to do when she's done. I am pointing her in the right direction about taking it to a lab and letting them change the film for her and develop it. But I figure there might be others in the same boat who have bought a plastic single or multiple-use camera and don't really know what comes next. And I have to say, this is one of the best questions that I've, I've had so far. It really gets to the most basic level of what we're about on Get Started with Film Photography podcast. You can ask more advanced questions, but I just love this because I never would have thought of going back to this, to this level. But it's certainly a question. So, so here's the deal. Film, if this is your first role that you've ever, ever shot, film has to be developed. 
Now, you can do it yourself, but I wouldn't suggest doing it yourself with your first role. If you know somebody who can develop film, maybe they can develop it for you. But most likely, what you're going to do is you're going to take the film to a processor, or you're going to send it through the mail to a processor. Now, we used to be able to take our film to the drugstore or to a camera store, and then we also had one-hour photo departments at chain stores or standalone photo processors. I live in the U.S., and Target used to be a great photo processor. They were cheap, and, and they did it within an hour. It was great. In many cities and smaller towns, there are still some of those one-hour photo processors that exist. But most of the country, you know, we don't, don't really have access to them. And I'm going to assume that in most of the rest of the world, they've seen the same thing happen where photo processing has, has gone away. So the first thing that I would do is go to Google and search for photo finishing and then the name of your town. It could be that there's a place that will, will help you out right there within your town. It could be right around the corner or it could be across town, but there may be something local. And I would suggest working with them first because then you can go in and you can ask questions and you can say, Hey, this is my first roll of film. What do I need to do? And they can, they can help you out with the services that they have available. But if you don't have that, and sadly, probably about 95% of the places who used to finish film, they've gone out of business. So that, that's too bad. However, we do live in the internet world, and the internet world is supported by postal services. So the answer is probably to mail it to a photo finisher. In the U.S., the darkroom in California is one of the largest and you can find them at thedarkroom.com. In the UK, AG Photographic is available at ag-photographic.co.uk. And in Canada, Downtown Camera in Toronto, they have photo finishing available by, by mail. And they are downtowncamera.com. Now, I just pulled three countries and, and talked about those. But that doesn't mean that you don't have somebody in your town. And in these countries, there are many other options as well. So I just pulled three from, from the listings that I knew. I have done business with the darkroom in California. They do some excellent work, uh, but I don't have any direct experience with either of the other two that I listed. You want to mail it off, but it's not just mailing it off. There are a lot of things that we have to go through first. The most basic thing you're ordering is the developing of the film. You want them to run it through the chemical bath that develops those latent images that are on that film. Often that's going to be the base price. So if you look on their websites and they say $9, six pounds, $82 Canadian, that's a joke. I'm emphasizing. Anyway, <laughs> I need a studio audience for this, I think. Okay. So the basic price, the base price is just for the developing usually, but then there are other things that you can add to it. If you have a scanner at home or you're able to enlarge it, then you can do that at home. But most likely, if you're sending it off to the darkroom, you don't have either of those facilities. Or if you have one of those facilities, 
you're able to scan your images. Now, I do have an episode coming up on scanning images. If you're listening to this after its original air date, which is in April 2019, look for that episode on scanning. One of the things that they can do for you is that they can scan your film. Scanning film is not just straightforward. There are different qualities of scanning. So you really need to look through what those are. I would probably off the bat just recommend if they have three levels of scanning, go with the middle level. It's not going to be super fantastic and it's not going to be super horrible. It's going to give you a good solid image that you can modify in Photoshop or you can just go ahead and post on your social media. That scan can either be delivered via the web, via a web download, or it can be delivered via CD or DVD mailed back to you. You have also the option of whether they are going to discard your negatives or send your negatives back. I'm going to 100% wholly recommend you have them send your negatives back to you. But some places, they, they, they'll just discard your negatives if you don't want to pay for them coming back. Now, the next thing that you can have done, and it's optional, is have each one of the frames printed. I've looked through a couple of different listings for photo finishers, and one of the things that I see often is you'll get a 4-inch print or a 5-inch print. A 4-inch print means from a 35mm camera, that is a 4-inch by 6-inch print. Now, 5-inch prints means that the print is 5 by 7. One of the things to notice about 4 by 6 and 5 by 7 is that they have different aspect ratios. 4 by 6 is a little bit longer than 5 by 7. So that means that some of the image is going to be cropped. And even on a 4 by 6 frame, that is going to be cropped just a little bit. So if you have crucial elements at the edge, you might want to see if you can get a bordered full frame print. Now, um, they don't necessarily cut a lot off, but usually if the prints are borderless, and they most usually are borderless, that means that there is an overshoot of that image, which means that they have zoomed in so that that image is a little bit bigger than that film so that it has that borderless edge. Uh, that means that some of the image is trimmed. I just want to warn you that ahead of time. Also, when, when some companies scan, they scan inside the edge of the borders of the image. So again, you can lose just a little bit. That would be a good reason to hold on to your negatives. You will have a return shipping cost, although sometimes that's included. Now, I want to talk also about what type of camera the question mentioned. The, the type of camera was a Lamography Simple Use Camera. Now, a simple use camera is kind of like what we used to call a disposable camera. It's a similar quality of build and lens and all of that type of thing, but it is a, a camera that you can reload. That's the reason why they call it simple use. You can reload it yourself, and there are YouTube videos available online for that. Or you can have them discard it. If it is a single-use camera, they will most likely discard it or recycle it. 
if it is a simple use camera, make sure they know that that camera can be reloaded and you want the camera back. That's a different thing from, from most single use cameras. And that's one of the things that puts the simple use camera in a different category from the single use cameras. Matt, that was an excellent question. Thank you very much for sending it in. We're going to go ahead and take a little break right here. Our next question is from Nick, and he goes by Avi Nick on Instagram. His question is, I opened the back door of the camera partway through the roll. I slammed it shut right away, but I'm not sure what to do. Are all my shots ruined? Well, Nick, uh, since photographic film is light sensitive, it's not good to expose the film to light. So closing the door as quickly as possible is the best thing that you could have done after opening it. But since some of that film has been exposed to additional light, that means that there is going to be some damage to at least some of that film. The quicker you slam it shut, the less damage there will be. And it could be that all the frames are damaged, or it could be that only a few of the frames are damaged. Likely the images that are right around the part of the film that was stretched across the film gate and the the part that you could see coming out of the cassette, most likely that's gone. Just write it off. Be okay if you remember what the photos were. Advance the film a couple of times and go take some more pictures so that you can continue to use that film and the whole roll is not damaged. In addition, if you are at the end of the roll or near the end of the roll, that means that the film that is wound on that take-up spool is really tightly wound. And it could be that the outer layers of that film have protected the inner layers from being exposed, especially if it was a um, you know, a very quick opening, you know, on the order of maybe a second or under a second. That tightly rolled film will likely save a lot of those images from the center. So I've accidentally opened the door on a camera that, that I thought was empty, and I've still been able to save some of the rolls. Now, I've also not been able to save some of the rolls, and it all depends on what the lighting conditions were when you opened it and how long it was open and all that. If your camera was one of the newer models made in, say, the 1990s or later, the film that you've shot may be absolutely 100% safe. So what happens is that these cameras roll the film all the way out of the cassette at the start when you load the camera. As each image is taken, it is rolled back into the cassette that would be protecting almost all of the images that you've already shot if it's rolled back into that cassette. And then then the rest of the film is maybe not worth shooting any more images on. Here's the way to tell if it is being rolled back into the cassette. If your numbers count downwards... 
So if you started at 36 and you're counting down and now you're at 24, then that camera is rolling the frames back into the cassette. If it is counting upwards, likely what's happened is that the images that you've already shot were out there to be exposed. I wouldn't panic a whole lot. There are different effects. You know, one of the things that a lot of people strive for uh, is light leaks, and you're going to get light leaks aplenty on that roll of film. So chalk it down to a happy accident, develop the film, and see what happens. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Our next question comes from Kathy, and she asked to have her social media withheld, so I'm going to just refer to her as Kathy. She says, I was at a gallery the other day, and I noticed that one photographer listed his photographs as gelatin silver prints, and another one listed his as giclée. What are these processes, and how are they different? In episode one of the film series of episodes that I have out, I described how film is made, but I, and rather than send you to that whole episode, it's worth, worth listening to, but rather than send you to that whole episode, I'm going to give a short description of how film is made. Film starts off with a clear base of plastic. It is the substrate. It is that clear plastic sheeting that is then later on cut into strips and and perforated for 35 millimeter film or wrapped within a backing paper for 120 medium format film. But that has a very clear base. Onto that base is spread a layer of gelatin. And gelatin is just like the, the same stuff that jello is made out of. It's a little bit thicker and a little bit less sticky. But that gelatin has suspended in it grains of silver halide. Now, silver halide is the light-sensitive material on film. Some films have several layers, and some of those films use different halides of, of silver. So there are five halides in the periodic table of elements. So fluoride, chloride, bromide, iodide, and astatide. Of those, there are three that are mixed with silver to create silver halide. Bromide, chloride, and iodide. Those are the three halides that mix with silver to make silver halide for film. So if we think about how it's spread on that base, that substrate of plastic, that is silver suspended in gelatin otherwise known as a gelatin-silver negative. So film will produce a gelatin-silver negative because it's gelatin and it's silver. So that's where that term comes from. Now, traditional photographic paper is made in the same way, except gelatin is not spread on film, it's spread on white paper. Or it could be a cream-colored paper or another colored paper, but generally it's spread on white paper. So traditional photographic paper is then called gelatin silver, and if you make a print with it, that is a gelatin silver print. So a gelatin silver print, by definition, would be a traditional black and white print 
made from black and white photographic paper. Really what the artist is telling you by calling it a gelatin silver print is that this is a quote real unquote photograph. It is the traditional type of photograph. And that's what I would really call it. I would call it a traditional photograph, but you can use the term gelatin silver print for that photograph if you want. That's that's perfectly fine. Now, the other thing that we were talking about is giclée, and giclée is spelled G-I-C-L-E with, a, with an accent on it, E. So G-I-C-L-E accent E. It comes from a French term, and the French term is roughly translated as spray or squirt. So a giclée print is an inkjet print. You may say, why do they call it a giclée instead of an inkjet? And there are uh, many people who think that there's really a difference between inkjet prints and giclée prints. Giclée prints are generally considered to be high quality, high quality pigments, high quality papers, and the, the paper should be archival. Now, there are a couple of things about that. There is no recognized international standard for what archival means. Now, archival means that we can hold on to it for a very long time, but if it's paper, it is, it is plant fiber. Plant fiber will dissolve eventually. Uh, the most archival thing that we have in the world is probably ceramics or stone. Cut stone will probably last longer than any other material that we have, but they don't even consider that archival. There is no standard for the standard of archival. It is just you stating that this is neutral paper. It's not acid. It's not alkaline. It's neutral paper. Uh, meaning that this is going to stay just the way it is for a long time. So there's also, if there's no standard for the archival status of the paper, there's no real standard for what giclée is. It, it, it needs to be noted. Uh, I, I'm not coming down negatively on giclée. Um, uh, where I work, we have a huge inkjet printer that creates incredible images using long, stable inks. So I, I, you know, I believe in them. I have inkjet prints all over the place or giclée prints. I generally don't call them ink giclée. I call them inkjet prints. But in a gallery, it's common to see that, see the giclée name. Some people believe that they will last as long or longer than gelatin silver prints. And again, that is only if they are treated with the utmost care and protected from the elements. If you buy a giclée, it could be of the, of the highest quality paper and inks out there, or it could be an off-the-shelf inkjet printer with off-the-shelf paper. There's no telling. So it, it it's a little bit of buyer beware with giclée, but I I I bought them. I don't have any problem uh, paying for them. So I I, I don't want to don't want to bias you against them. I just want to let you know what those two two terms mean: gelatin silver print and giclée. Thank you, Kathy, for that question. I want to give special thanks to the people who sent in questions this month. 
at Jevhar on Instagram, and Jevhar is J-E-V-H-A-R-R on Instagram. Matt Jones at mjones41 on Instagram. Nick, who is at Avi Nick on Instagram, and Kathy, who has no social media to read. I want to thank all of you for asking very good questions. Each month, I will release one of these question and answer episodes. If you would like to submit a question, there is a link on my website, getstartedwithfilm.com. You can also email me, graham at getstartedwithfilm.com, and my name is spelled G-R-A-H-A-M at getstartedwithfilm.com. You can also message me on Instagram, at getstartedwithfilm. Also on Instagram, you can follow the show's feed, which is at Get Started With Film. And if you tag your images with the hashtag Get Started With Film or the shorter version, which is GSWFPP for Get Started With Film Photography Podcast, I may feature your episode in the feed. So I'll have a good chance of looking at it if you tag your photographs. Get Started With Film is part of the Film Podcast Network. For a listing of film photography-related podcasts, go to filmpodcastnetwork.com. Our music came from the website filmmusic.io. This track is Poofy Real by Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com. It is licensed through Creative Commons.